Welcome to The Foundry, where leaders are forged daily. Each week, we investigate themes of leadership, entrepreneurship, and mindset with some of the greatest minds in real estate. And now, the data scientist of real estate, George Roberts. Welcome back, investors. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Calvin Roberts, principal of Falcon Insurance Agency of Michigan. Falcon is the go-to experts in commercial property insurance and are also the risk management partner of hundreds of syndicators, private equity groups, REITs, and mom-and-pop investment groups. Welcome to the show, Calvin. Thank you very much for hosting me, George. It's my pleasure to speak with you. Awesome. And I'm very excited today because I know that you're not just here to talk about insurance, but you take a more holistic approach. And I'd like to lead with that. I want to know how can building owners take a proactive approach to make themselves more insurable and hopefully reduce their likelihood of losses and hopefully also reduce those premiums? So a big part of the strategy that we bring to the table is rounding out the risk management program of our multifamily operator groups using contractual risk transfer. That's one of the big tools that we you know, put special emphasis on. And I'll give an example of that. When you last hired a subcontractor, you know, maybe you had to get a roof repaired, you had to, you know, something like the landscaping, could be a weekly job. Did you collect a insurance certificate? Maybe. Did you collect a insurance certificate that names both your property management operation as well as the building owning entity? as an additional insured? Possibly. Does the contractor's coverage also stipulate that they are going to provide coverage primary non-contributory? What that means is if the loss happens, and the loss happens as a result of negligence or alleged negligence on the part of the hired subcontractor, we want their insurance company to step up to the plate to respond primary, as it's called, and not get into a arm wrestling tug of match with your insurance company trying to drag them into the loss. That's what we're hoping to avoid. Did you ask for a waiver of subrogation from that subcontractor? A waiver of subrogation, what that will do is it's a contractual condition provided by the, in this context, the subcontractor, their insurance company, to where they agree to waive their right of recovery, meaning they're not going to settle the loss and then try to come pointing fingers our way to hopefully get some of their money back. So tools such as that, they cost you nothing. Often, especially in the context of a hired subcontractor, they are included on the subcontractor's insurance policy. Most of the time, I always include those conditions whenever I you know, write a contractor account, for example. So it's not gonna necessarily even cost them anything extra but it does require that contractual obligation for the subcontractor to provide those conditions for coverage to respond. So simply by requiring it, asking for it, that's how we get those coverages to respond. They cost you nothing, they cost the subcontractor nothing, and they do a lot, especially at scale, to keep losses that are bound to happen from negatively impacting you and your loss ratio. Right, but first you got to know about it and you got to take the action too. Well, here's another one. What about property managers? I think that's another great way to, to manage your risk holistically. Once you sign that contract with the property manager, 
you've already transferred some of that risk, correct? Correct. And I can give a nice little story example, not so pleasant of a loss scenario, but a very applicable reason and justification for the risk management benefit of, you know, kind of contracting out that management exposure to a third party. I had a 20 or 24 unit building in Metro Detroit, and there was a young man, 18 year old, who was unfortunately murdered on premises. This was about a year ago. And it's a terrible, tragic story. You know, nobody ever likes to see scenarios like that happen, especially at their property. But I can tell you my client, the property owner, is very happy that they, you know, contracted out that management operation to a third party. There hasn't been a lawsuit brought yet. There could be in the future. We're still kind of, you know, holding our breath and crossing our fingers on that. But the scenario is that it was a illegal gun sale gone wrong. This young man was robbed and we presume tried to fight back or otherwise dispute the robbery. It occurred inside the laundry room that was accessible from the exterior of the building. This building was acquired three or four months prior to the loss by the property owner. It was a new acquisition. The property manager was not aware of that exterior facing laundry access door and didn't think to rekey that entry. So it was likely an old tenant that still had a functioning key that had not yet been invalidated by changing the locks. Long story short, if and when a lawsuit does occur as a result of that loss, it's going to turn into a finger pointing expedition. And I can tell you that because it was a section eight building, one of the common insurance exclusions on subsidized type properties, such as section eight properties, is the assault and battery liability exclusion, meaning the property owner does not necessarily have insurance coverage that would respond if a lawsuit was brought. Because the property manager was allegedly negligent in their handling of, you know, not repeating the laundry access door that was accessible from the exterior, one could make a very logical and credible claim that it's really their fault. They failed to properly understand the property. They failed to implement protective safeguards, such as rekeying all the you know, units and entrances to the building. And as a result, this young man lost his life on the property. So it's another tool in the risk management tool set for passing risk off to a third party. And it is something to keep in mind when kind of weighing the pros and cons and merits of hiring external third party management. Yeah, very sad example, but uh, definitely very key in underscoring the fact that when you do sign an agreement like that, where you have an agent acting on your behalf, that that can be a layer of protection. You also mentioned exclusions in there. Well, here's one that's often excluded, ordinance and law. Tell us what can happen if, suppose you have some partial damage, maybe you have some peril like a fire rips through, Hey, you've you've got fire coverage, but guess what? What happens next? What's not covered? So ordinance and law is one of the famous insurance gotchas that I try to have a conversation with whenever I am bored with a new client. Sometimes the client is okay with retaining that risk. You know, they are sufficiently liquid, have capable reserves, and are okay with 
retaining more of that risk in an effort to achieve a lower insurance premium. You know, they don't want to pay the insurance company to pick up every which scenario that could go wrong during the course of owning and operating a multifamily property. Let's say you own a, I'll give a real world example of eight unit apartment building in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and you have a tenant kitchen fire, you know, one of those U of M students, they stay up late studying, maybe crack open a few cold ones and fall asleep with a little frozen pizza in the oven. Well, the fire happens. The city of Ann Arbor says, sure, we'll give you your renovation permits. No worries. You just have to install sprinklers. That's our condition for, you know, signing off on your permit. Well, a replacement cost policy is going to pay to rebuild the property or repair the property the way it existed prior to the loss. It's not going to make it better than it was before or otherwise improve on it in this context being sprinkler additions to the property. Without ordinance law coverage, you would have to come out of pocket for that additional cost of upgrading the property, whereas ordinance law would pick up that additional expense up to the limit selected. And so the older the building you have, the more likelihood that if the city says, hey, you got to bring that up to current code, that gives you some idea of the scale of uh, the, the cost. I mean, they can be prohibitive too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it could be something just as simple as bringing the electrical, you know, the wiring and whatnot up to code for the damaged portion or also the undamaged portion. That's where it be can become extremely expensive. You know, maybe one unit's damaged, but they want you to essentially gut renovate the entire building. Otherwise they won't play ball with your permit requests. That's where the real value of ordinance and law can shine. You know, the cost of upgrading is not insignificant, but the cost of upgrading the undamaged portion of the building can become extremely prohibitive very quickly. Oh yeah, once you uh, once you tear into those walls, just like Chip and Joanna say, oh, the price just went up. <laughs> <laughs> it gets expensive. I mean, it can become effectively a gut renovation job, right. just like that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's talk about some other perils. I know people also try to save money on, you might say, well, hey, we're just not gonna get the wind insurance this time. Yikes. Well, I, I've got property in Florida and that's that doesn't really sit very well with me. That's that's a little frightening. Um, I guess we'll come back to exclusions later, but speaking of Florida, like what is going on with Florida? I know people own uh, property in Florida and Texas. They're wondering, what happened to my premium, man? I would argue Florida is a very bad property insurance marketplace today. And I believe it's trending in an even worse direction. I, I'll speculate a little later on as to what I think the medium term and long term future of the Florida property insurance marketplace might look like. But today it's really four or five things all working in tandem. The first being it's a low-lying peninsula in a hurricane-exposed prone part of the world. So you do get those natural, frequent, and, you know, large loss, catastrophic loss events where a hurricane comes through and smokes Tampa, like we saw last year, or, you know, just the natural geographic factor is not to be understated. And then historically, although the state of Florida has, in recent months, 
been working in a direction to provide a more hospitable insurance marketplace, you know, one where companies want to set up shop and compete, try to win business, but historically has scared away many of the large national, you know, big capital backed insurance company players that are prevalent in just about every other market. Travelers nationwide, Liberty Mutual. I mean, the list kind of goes on of large players that have no interest in doing any business in the state of Florida. And the reason for that is, again, a couple things all contributing in tandem. The first being, let's use a kind of anecdotal experience. A storm blows through. Maybe your roof loses two or four shingles, but is otherwise reasonably in decent shape. I mean, you know, we're not trying to pretend that a loss didn't affect us, but maybe it caused very mild damage that could be easily repaired. But you see that your neighbor gets a new roof, and when the door-knocking roofers knock on your door, maybe you have a chat with them, and they say, yeah, no, we'll get your claim paid. It won't be an issue. So they take the lead. They file the claim on your behalf. And then the insurance company denies the claim and say, that's not fair. My buddy Paul, he just got a brand new roof and his was in better shape than mine. So then you start talking to maybe an attorney that was referred to you or recommended to you by one of your friends. And the attorney says, yeah, no, you have a case. We need to bring a bad faith lawsuit against the insurance company. So before we go well, into bad faith lawsuit, can we back up a couple of steps? So Florida, unlike other states, allows that contractor to file the, the claim on your behalf, correct? Is, is that not a major part of the issue here with Florida? Correct. There, there are other states where the contractor can file. You can assign that right to a third party. But in Florida, they have extremely stringent rebuild requirements. I'm spitballing a little bit, but my understanding is that if 25% of the property is damaged in a loss event. Florida considers that a total loss. That's atypical. Most of the country is not like that. They'll try to salvage as much as they can. Florida kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater to an extent. So it's, it's a series of factors with parties that all have varying and sometimes competing interests, and it's all aligned. So it becomes a scenario very quickly where when we bring that bad faith claim lawsuit against the insurance company, and so does everyone else in our neighborhood or cul-de-sac or subdivision, it becomes overwhelming for the insurance companies to fight that, you know, in any real capacity. I read a statistic late last year that in quarter four, 2022, 90% of all of the bad faith claim lawsuits brought against insurance companies originated in Florida. Now, you know, perhaps Florida insurance companies are just up to no good trickery more than every other company in the United States by a you know, disproportionate amount, or the laws and regulations of that state are excessively friendly to the litigant party and almost motivate people to bring suit. Because the insurance company, right or wrong, let's say your roof repair, roof replacement might be twenty or $25,000, and they are thinking, do we want to settle this and be done with it, or would we prefer to drag it on in court, 
spend 50 or 75 or 100 grand on legal fees defending this over the next two or three years. Well, the cheaper option at that point is just to pay a claim that isn't necessarily valid. It's the least painful option for them. Mm-hmm. It's the old saying that when everyone gets something for free, nobody really gets anything for free. And that's very applicable for Florida. Yeah, very, very true. Uh, here's another current topic. What about inflation? So how is that impacting insurance? So I just yesterday, I saw that Nationwide is pulling out of habitational effective June 30th. So no more multifamily new business after the end of this month. And one of the conditions they cited for this change was inflation. And it's very negatively impacting specifically the real estate segments. You know, it's one of those things where insurance companies, the way that they really make profit is off of the flow mechanism. So they collect your premium, it goes into a trust investment account. The premium is allocated to pay expenses and then claims and then any other overhead. And they usually about break even. That's it's called the combined loss ratio. And that's usually around 100% across the industry. It actually tends to run around 101 or 102%. So they pay a dollar and one or a dollar and two cents for every dollar in premium that comes in. And the reason that this is able to function and these companies don't go insolvent is that let's say I pay $10,000 a year for 10 years. And then at the end of that 10th year, I have a $100,000 loss. Well, based on premium, they've broken even, but they've also been collecting interest on that money, been invested the entire time. It's a float mechanism where, you know, it's kind of like the tenant deposits that a multifamily operator might collect. That money has to be returned to the tenant at the end of their lease or once they vacate the unit. But you're free to put that into a money market account all the while and collect interest on that deposit that's yours to keep. So that's how insurance companies really generate profit is by investing the premiums and then pocketing the float. That's theirs. Yeah, I love that term float. I think that's the first time we've heard that on this show. That's one of the things that helped to make Warren Buffett famous. Of course, not only is he the CEO of the world's uh, one of the world's largest conglomerates, but he's the greatest investors in the world, and he's found very productive ways to invest those insurance premiums. But yeah, absolutely. So to to put a bow on it, essentially, you're collecting uninflated dollars, and then you have to pay out your claim in inflated dollars later on down the road when mm-hmm. something goes wrong and that can be a problem. Correct. You know, it messes with their accounting where typically for insurance companies, if they're paying more than around 65 to 70% of the premiums that they pay out in claims, you know, a 65 to 70% loss ratio, as we call it, that's usually about the break-even point on underwriting. You know, they have to pay 10 to 15% commission to the retail insurance broker for writing and servicing policy. And then they might seed five to 10% to the reinsurance company. That's insurance for the insurance companies for those large catastrophic loss events. 
And then maybe they have five to 10% for their cost of doing business, you know, underwriting and then whatever other corporate type expenses come up. But let's say they have a year like we've had over the last three where the cost of just about everything increases 20 to 30% every year. Well, if you're budgeting to pay out, let's say 60%, and then that becomes 80 or 85 or 90% because of inflation, you know, affecting the cost of rebuilding so rapidly, like we've saw over the last several years. In that scenario, you're losing a lot of money on underwriting. It becomes very expensive for the company. And what do you do if you're a company and you're not making money? You raise your prices and hope that you're making money then. <laughs> so that's kind of where we're getting to. It's a scenario where I think the heavens every single day that's not my capital on the line to pay and settle property losses because I see the loss ratios for habitational and you know, the other real estate insurance segments across the industry. And it's it's not something to where I look at them with jealous envy and greed. It's a scary business to be in. It can be very good and very fruitful when it is good. But when the times are bad for real estate insurance, they are excessively bad. And that's why you see so many companies pulling out the segment. They've had enough of it. They're losing money every year. They can't seem to right the ship and find profitability. So they're choosing to pack up their bag and go play ball somewhere else. Exactly, making some of these difficult to insure markets even more difficult to insure. Exactly. You're seeing a, an exodus of capital from real estate insurance. 